morning we are in Acts 24, starting in verse 1. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly, for we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world, and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up into Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust." So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Again, if you're new, this is what we do at the Parks Church. We preach through books of the Bible, and uh, we are making our way through the book of Acts. Uh, We are nearing, I think, uh, teaching number 60 or or something like that. But we are uh, drawing this thing to a close here, walking through the final uh, sections of Scripture here, chapters in in Acts. And we'll want to keep Acts 24 open on on your lap as I'll walk through uh, this verse by verse for us this morning. So Deco Records uh, was one of the largest recording labels uh, of its day. And back in the day, they were approached by a young group of guys seeking a recording contract. Uh, They gave them a hard no, firm pass, stating, and I quote, guitar bands are a thing of the past, and that there's no way that this group of misfits would ever amount to much of anything. Plus, they couldn't even spell the word beetle 
correctly. Deco failed and missed an opportunity of a lifetime. See if you recognize any of these names. Giovanni Carmazzi, Chris Redman, T. Martin, Mark Bolger, Spurgeon Wynn. No? No takers? Right, yeah. Those, and the only reason you know those are five quarterbacks, because them, along with 193 other players, were taken in the 1999 NFL draft ahead of the one that everybody knows whether you know NFL or not. Tom Brady, right? Opportunity missed. Um, missed opportunities are true of all of our lives, and probably many of you can think of different times where you missed an opportunity. Maybe in family, maybe in relationship, maybe in business or career. Maybe it's something a little bit more personal or closer to home. And maybe for some of you or many of us, you think about that term even spiritually. Where you look back in your spiritual journey, if you're a Christ follower here, and you had an opportunity maybe to repent and confess and walk away from sin, but you chose not to. And that missed opportunity changed the trajectory of what happened or where you headed. You see, the scriptures are full of people who missed opportunities. Esau in the Old Testament selling his birthright for a bowl of soup. Even the philosophers in the book of Acts, right, at Mars Hill, where Paul there lays out the gospel. And what do they do? They, they reject it. You see, some missed opportunities like the ones I opened up with are just, you know, all shucks. Like, yeah, that, that, that stinks, right? Recording contract, NFL draft, football players. But other missed opportunities are devastating. Maybe ones that come to your mind. But I want to submit to you this morning that there are some missed opportunities that are not just aw shucks or devastating, but there are some missed opportunities that in fact are deadly. You see, Pilate stood before Jesus. Jesus on trial. And he asked Jesus this question. What is truth? What is the truth? With the capital T truth standing right before him. He missed it. Or maybe one of the most familiar and one of the most tragic is Judas. Judas Iscariot. Given an opportunity that only 11 other men on the planet were ever given to walk side by side with the Savior, the Messiah, Jesus Christ for three years. And yet sold him out. For 40 pieces of silver. You see here in Acts 24. We have a missed opportunity. And it's found at the end of the chapter. And and we'll get to that as we wade through the first part. But I want up front. You to see this and sense this from Felix. Felix is the governor of Caesarea. The region that Paul has been taken into from Jerusalem. Caesarea was a very prominent, beautiful space and place that, that Felix had the um, um, oversight over as governor. And Felix would imprison Paul there for two years. Did you catch that in Alexia's reading in, in your scripture? It's at the end there. That Paul was there two years proclaiming the gospel, sharing the gospel with Felix and his wife. And yet what history tells us is that Felix ended up Missing one of the greatest opportunities of his life. But let's start at verse 1. The scene here in Acts 24 at the beginning is a courtroom. 
And really, you can divide this text into three parts. And the first is, is the prosecution. The next is the defense. And then you have the outcome or what I would call the missed opportunity. And that'll serve kind of as our, our outline. And so let's look at the first section here, the prosecution. Remember, Paul is on trial uh, by the Jews here in a different region. Okay, and so the Jews now have assembled. They've hired uh, an attorney or lawyer, if you will, uh, to try Paul to lay their case before Felix, hoping that Felix gives them a positive judgment. And so let's look at it here in our text. And it says in verse two, and when he had been summoned, Tertullius began to accuse him, saying, and see if this doesn't sound flowery or buttery to you. Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. Sound a little buttery? It's meant to, okay? And some of it, right? Is, is just the way in which the, these proceedings would, would occur. There, there's, there's respect and there's, there's, there's respectful language that, that he's using. But what lies behind this in all of his applauding of Felix's kindness that you don't read is actually how Felix carried out law and order. How Felix, this governor, actually would carry out keeping the peace of Rome, right? The Pax Romana, right? That was, that's what they valued more than anything. Felix was violent, he was brutal. He cared about maintaining law and order and making a public display of anyone who would not follow his leading or, or, or respect this kind of law and order. And so him saying your kindness, it's, it's, he knows how Felix cares. It's, it's a little bit disingenuous. All right, but, but it is formal and, and he's, he's, he's carrying that out until the next line. Let's look at this. For we have found this man, this is verse 5, for we have found this man a plague. Now, I'm trying to think of a kind thing, a way to articulate this. Uh, Tertullius here is essentially calling Paul a name, a really nasty name. He's calling him a plague, which is we don't really get, but it's essentially going before all this crowd and before Felix, like, this guy is a disease, and so this is, a, this is a tactic, right? But it's like he went from being very respectful, being very kind, to now being very aggressive and almost stepping out of bounds and going, here's, play, here's Paul the plague, right? I don't know if he meant to alliterate, but he did here in the English. Anyway, probably not in the Greek, okay? But here's Paul the plague. That's who you've got on trial, Paul the plague. Paul the plague. And let me tell you why he is Paul the plague. He's a disease. He spreads. It goes throughout the known world. It, it's in here in Jerusalem and he must be stopped. Now, let's think about this for just a second because I think it's culturally relevant. Name calling is a very effective form of arguing, right? Some of you might agree, some of you might disagree. But by him calling Paul a plague here before ever laying out the specific indictments, He's essentially wanting them along the audience, along with Felix to believe that he's a plague. And if he can get him to believe he's a plague up front, then 90% is already done. He's just got to prove the other 10% to be true because labels have a way of sticking. Do they not? Of shading everything else, right? E e even thinking about this culturally, even labels toward Christians, they have a way of sticking. Do they not? 
Maybe even the way that Satan likes to work. The, the accuser is his, one of his names. He loves to label us and then bring shame and guilt under those labels. Why is Paul a plague? What, what, what case is this lawyer, this attorney going to make a, against Paul to prove that he's a plague? Well, he, he lays down three things. And I'm going to list these three things before you. And the first one is this. It's all here in the text. He's one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world. First indictment, stirs up riots everywhere. Stirs up riots uh, among the Jews. You see, this first charge is the most serious charge. Why? Because of what I mentioned earlier, what Rome was all about. Law and order and keeping the peace. And if this one sticks, Paul's good is gone. Right? Rome would go to great lengths to make sure that there was peace and law and order for everything because it was best for commerce and life. And so stopping any kind of uprising was something they were dead set on doing. So if, therefore, Paul is starting uprisings, then he must be stopped. That's why they start with this one. That's why this, this attorney leads with this one. But he knows he has kind of a weak case in that. So he says, I have two more indictments. And the next one is this. Look at it. It says, and he is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Paul the plague is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Do you hear the charged language? This is the first time, and I think, I think, check me on this. The only time Nazarenes is used in the scriptures is describing this. It's, a, it's, it's charged language, right? Ringleader. Sect. It's something called spin. You know what it means to spin something? Like spinning? Not the class you're in, okay, but like spinning language, right? Now, thankfully, we don't have any of that occurring today, okay? There's no such thing as spin happening. There's no such thing, correct, right? Can we all agree with that and just move on to the next point, right? Some of you are unconvinced. Go turn on your television, okay, and go to CNN, Fox News, MSNBC. I'm going to list all the channels so I can offend everyone and listen for spin, Listen for the language, right? He was the ringleader of a sect of the Nazarenes. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Seriously, that's what he's trying to convince. That's what he's trying to convey. Third indictment. He profaned the temple. He profaned the temple. Now, for Felix, this Roman leader and governor, this one for him would be like, I don't care. Okay, he, he profaned the temple, right? But if they can get Felix to agree that he profaned the temple, here's what Felix will do. He will send Paul back to Jerusalem to be tried. And we know exactly what will happen to him if he gets sent back to Jerusalem. We'll see it in later texts. We've seen it in earlier texts that they will and want to murder Paul. So they're like, listen, our last attempt would be this. He profaned our temple. He profaned the temple. Send it back to us and we'll deal with it, Felix. We'll, we'll, we'll make the call. It'll be on our hands. And now the defense. So that's the case. That's what's laid out before uh, Paul and before Felix. And look at this, verse 10. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied. So Paul is giving his own defense here. Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation. Now, Paul's not lying and Paul's not buttering him up. He's just stating something and, and showing respect, which I, 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 
I admire about Paul. And then he says, I cheerfully make my defense. I love Paul. He's like, I cheerfully come before you to make this defense because this is a no brainer. This, this is this. If you will just see this, Felix, as a reasonable man, you will see that these are false Inflamed, exaggerated claims that have no truth to them at all. Notice what Paul doesn't do. And Paul, listen, we've been in Acts long enough to know that this isn't always true of Paul, but it's typically true of Paul. What does Paul not do here? Remember how, 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 how Tertullius, how he went at Paul? Paul the plague, name calling, tone, exaggerated language. Paul doesn't go, I'm not the plague, you're the plague, Right? He doesn't come up with a catchy name for Tertullius, right? What does Paul do in response to these exaggerated false claims? He tells the truth. He simply tells the truth. As Christians and Christ followers, how do we respond to false accusations? How do we respond to inflamed or exaggerated claims maybe against you or against someone around you? Do you have a tendency, as I do, to match, want to match tone for tone? Right? Go toe to toe. May the best man win. Tactic for tactic. But what do the scriptures call us to do? Humbly tell the truth. Tell the truth. And so that's what Paul does. Verse 11. He deals with the first indictment about riots. Have riots been happening where Paul is? Yes. Has Paul started those riots? No, he hasn't. Typically, they're incited by people who want to get Paul in trouble. They're not incited by people following the way. And Paul goes, to make this case or this point, I want you to see that I've only been here 12 days. Felix, you know that as well as I do. I've only been here for 12 days. And so there's no way that that could have occurred. Next one, he says, I'll give you this. Ringleader of the Nazarenes, I probably wouldn't say it that way. (laughs) That's essentially what Paul says. However, this is what I am. I am a follower of the way. Capital W. I am a follower of Jesus Christ, the rabbi. And if there is any fault in following a rabbi, which many of them did, he says, I'm guilty as charged. That's who I follow. That's who I proclaim. I'm not a ringleader of riots. I'm a follower of the way, the one who upholds and fulfills the law and the prophets and all that was written. He tells the truth. And then the last one about defiling the temple. He totally shows them and reminds Felix that when the Jews came and got him, condemning him of profaning or defiling the temple, he reminds them that they actually found him purified. He actually was there giving alms and bringing offerings to his nation. And they found him in an appropriate way. But they still went ahead and arrested him. Why? Because they didn't like him. And then verse 21, Paul cuts to the chase. He says, listen, he says, you want to know why I'm on trial? You want to know why these Jews have brought me in here? Right? It's not for the three reasons that they gave. Here is why. Look at it in verse 21. Other than this one thing, I cried out. So he's going, this is the one thing. This is what got me put in prison. This is what put me before you, Felix. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. What does Paul tell Felix? The reason for him being on trial every time he's on trial is because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, here is what we need to ask. Why? 
Why would Paul say that? What is the connection between him believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and him being on trial? Derek Thomas, he's a a great commentator on the book of Acts. He says this, and uh, you can go ahead and put that quote up. And I want to read it, and, and I want you to listen to what it says about the resurrection. And this is the reason Paul is on trial. This is the reason that the Jews have seized him and brought him and want to kill him. The resurrection was the signal from heaven of his, meaning Jesus, divine identity. It was his father in heaven saying, well done. It signaled the end of type and shadow and the emergence of the end for which all the ceremonial laws pointed. That's the stick. The point, the fulfillment of those laws. It validated the claim that Jesus Christ is alive. It is a glimpse of the ultimate goal of God's purposes with his people. In sum, the resurrection is the core of the Christian faith that signals the triumph of the cross over death, sin, and hell itself. Nothing embodies the Christian's faith more accurately than the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Leave that up there. That last statement. Nothing embodies the Christian faith more than what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. What is Christianity all about? What does it hinge on, if you will? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. What is Paul on trial for? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. They all denied it, right? Not that they denied the resurrection of the dead. They denied the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because what Paul is saying is this. I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And they go, no. I believe that Jesus perfectly fulfills all the laws of the Old Testament. They would go, absolutely not. I believe that Jesus lives and rules today and is reigning today. And they would go, no way. And they put him on trial. Why would Paul say all those things? Because of the empty tomb. Because of the empty tomb. You see, Christian, um, it's in light of the resurrection that we are rejected even to this day. It's in light of the resurrection that we are held in the court of public opinion to this day. You understand that, right? Like if the resurrection is not true, then you should definitely, we should definitely not be gathered here today listening to me talk about these words from Jesus. If the resurrection is not true, then all of the cultural adaptations, all the things we're we're told to accept and just believe and receive, we should. But, however, if the resurrection is true, what does that mean? It means that everything Jesus taught, and it's not just the red letters, it's the whole counsel of the word of God. Because Jesus himself said, it's all about me. We must live under its authority. If the resurrection is true, we yield and submit to the word of God as supreme. That's what leads us. That's what steers us. That's what shapes us. That's what calls us into things and away from things. If the resurrection is true, it's everything. The resurrection, I'm convinced, for Christians is one of the least. If it's what I just said, it's the hinge of everything for our faith. But it's one of the things most glossed over and, and not thought about in the life of many believers. Right? It's, 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 it seems like it's just become like this, this religious holiday that we just really, really think about it one day a year, right? One Sunday. We get really excited about it, and that's good, and that's fine. But the resurrection is something that should pervade every single moment and every single day of our lives. That we should think, okay, if the resurrection is true, right, then I'm going to live my life in this way. If the resurrection is not true, then forget it all. And like Paul says, like, we're, we're to be most pitied, right? 
It's all folly. It's all for naught. But the resurrection, let me tell you, is true. That the tomb is empty. That Jesus is victorious over death, sin, and hell itself. And that affects every single day. Every single decision that I make is in light of the resurrection. And now the outcome. Verses 22 through 27. If you look here, Felix doesn't just punt on making a a verdict toward Paul in this case, does he? He punts on something far more um, incredible. So while he, he houses Paul to kind of, you know, settle things down, he keeps him in prison for two years. And knowing Paul, Paul proclaims the gospel to Felix and Drusilla, his wife, for two years. You see, Drusilla, the text alludes here, um, says she was a Jew. Felix was not her first husband. And uh, Drusilla, history tells us, is that she was, one, very pretty, and two, she was very um, promiscuous. And because we're in mixed company, I'm not going to tell you in detail how Felix got her to be his wife. But a couple who, as you can imagine, one with a violent temper, very angry as a leader, and then having Drusilla as his wife. And what's interesting is it says here that in verse 25, what did Paul talk to them about? And he reasoned about righteousness, holiness, righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. Kind of an odd trifecta, right? But it's not if you understand the heart of these two people that the gospel is trying to penetrate, that Paul was trying to penetrate with the gospel. Paul was aware of that. Sounds very similar to one known as John the Baptist, right? And how did that end up when he confronted very similar issues? (laughs) Head on a platter? But for some reason, this couple allowed Paul to continue to talk. And I think verse 22 is very interesting. Look at it. It says, Felix having a rather accurate knowledge of the way. Felix knew the gospel. Felix had an understanding, a proper understanding of the gospel as Paul presented it, an accurate knowledge of the gospel. Now, here's what we need to highlight, that there is a difference between a knowledge of the gospel and a saving knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Felix does not have a saving knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He just has an accurate knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now hear me, in our area, in the Midwest buckle of the Bible belt, there are many people who sit in churches today who have an accurate view of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who have an accurate understanding, if you will, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but who do not have a saving knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of the most tragic things on the planet to be that kind of deceived, to have mere intellectual knowledge that has not permeated to the heart. You say, Kyle, what's the difference? How do you know the difference? How do do I know that I don't simply have just a knowledge, a head knowledge, and it hasn't permeated and changed my heart? I think the scriptures would tell us. Who's the main authority of your life? Is it Jesus? Are Are you submitting to him and his lordship? Or you? 
How about transformation? When there is true saving knowledge of the gospel, it leads to inevitable transformation in your life and in my life. Not perfection, but something called sanctification. This process where we are made slowly and surely more and more into the image of Christ. Can you look at your life and see those markers? Can you lay down Galatians 5 and the fruit of the Spirit and see those things maybe slowly but surely happening and growing in your life? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Or James would put it like this. He says the negative, faith without works is what? Dead. That's an indicator So a saving faith and a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ is a faith that is proactive in working and growing. And it says in verse, the end of verse 25, that Felix was alarmed. Was alarmed. Something struck him. Something something rattled him. But being alarmed and being rattled and being shaken is not the same thing as confessing and repenting. See, history would tell us and what the end of this chapter would even allude to is that Felix missed the opportunity to become a child of God. Instead, he chose the riches of Rome and the pleasures of this world and temporary gain. Something Jesus would speak about in Mark chapter 8, verse 36, a very familiar verse. He says, what does it profit a person if he, if, he, if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? What, what good is it? Why do many people make that transaction? Gain the whole world, lose their soul. Listen, I'm convinced it's not because they go, yeah, that sounds like a better transaction, right? World, soul, I'll take world. I don't think that's it. And maybe I'm giving humanity too much credit here, but I I don't think that's it. I think that many people never make that transaction because they simply choose to procrastinate. Just put it off. Just keep putting it off. Keep delaying it. Keep delaying it. Gloria Pitzer, she's a poet. She wrote this, just a brief little line in one of her poems. She says, procrastination is my sin. It brings me not but sorrow. I know that I should stop it. In fact, I will tomorrow. And so listen to me. For some of you, this has been you delaying obedience and submitting your whole life to the surrender of Jesus Christ. Believing that you can't save yourself not trusting in the ways that you have tried to live moral or good, but in true yielding and confessing and repentance and surrendering your life to Christ. And today I would say, don't procrastinate any longer. Don't delay. The hand of God has you here sitting in these seats, hearing the message of Felix. And listen, I understand the sovereignty of God. And this is where we have to stretch our theological rubber band around the sovereignty of God and free will and choice, okay? This is one of those places where God's sovereign will was that he allowed us to see Felix like a bright flashing red light on the dash of our car this morning for you and for me. 
And for some of you who are Christ followers, the procrastination not, is not in salvation. It's in obedience. It's in following the way with your whole life. Maybe it's in walking away from something you have been involved in for a long time. That God has been time and time again calling, but that faint, that voice has grown faint. You see, I've never, ever heard anyone or met anyone who came to faith say, I wish I'd waited a little longer. Or say, hey, I'm glad I waited to my 40s or 50s. or I'm glad I waited. I had a lot. No, you want to know what unanimously what the sentiment is? Oh, if, if I just would have surrendered sooner. Why? Because we taste and see that the Lord is good. We say that living in submission and surrender to him as Jesus is king and Lord is the best. That's the good life. That's where we find flourishing. That's where we find hope. That's where we, that's, that's where we actually find life and life to the fullest. John 10, 10. Hebrews 3, 15 says this. If you hear the voice of the Lord today, do not harden your heart against it. Believer in obedience. Person who sits here wondering, do I really know Christ? Listen, in procrastination, your heart doesn't get softer. It gets harder. And you continue and go, maybe one day, maybe one day, maybe one day. That's not the path of a softened heart. That's the path away from the Lord to a heart that is hard toward him. Receive these words today as God's good gift in his grace in Christ to you. Let's pray. Father, salvation alone is a work of your hand and your spirit calling and drawing kids and men and women to yourself. And it's in that that I trust you take things in tragic moments like that of Felix and his wife who heard the gospel for two years and chose to still walk away. Who chose to delay and push it off and push it off. God, you give us those stories as a reminder and a call to not fall into that same trap and pit. And Lord, I know that there are people here who have heard sermons and sat in church services, maybe even much like this. Many who have an accurate head knowledge of you, but who have not surrendered their life to the saving work of Jesus Christ. And I pray by your irresistible grace that you would draw them to yourself. That they would be like Sam described, that prodigal son or prodigal daughter that runs, runs home to meet a father who's already there sprinting after them. 
and that the guilt and the shame and the condemnation is nailed to the cross. And so I pray that there might be many in this room who might confess their great need for Jesus, confess that they are lost without him. And Lord, I pray for those of us who are disciples, who are Christ followers, who have procrastinated and, and maybe even our, our lives in recent history, we've, we've missed opportunities to come and confess and repent and, and turn from our sin and turn to you. Lord, may we do that this morning. May we trust and lean wholly on Jesus' name. God, give us the faith to do that. God, clear the fog from our heads and our hearts. God, forgive us for being so self-centered, so self-absorbed. God, show us your goodness. Let us see your kindness that leads to repentance. Father, I pray that you who lead us into green pastures, there would be freedom and reconciliation and wholeness. That all the flourishing we're looking for is found in you. It's found in surrender and submission to you, the good and perfect king whose ways are good and perfect. So Lord, I pray we as a church and a community might delight in that. We might show the watching world that kind of kingdom and king. The kingdom we're participating in as we go from here. God, give us faith to not be procrastinators when it comes to things of you, to obedience, to love, to zeal and honor and affection. Lord, I thank you for this community of faith. I thank you that we walk this way shoulder to shoulder and not isolated for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen.